0: Uh, thank you, Timothy, and I want to thank John Armour also, who is not only my closest colleague here, but also was instrumental in making the Leverhulme professorship happen. Um, I also should say that I'm here to learn from all of you as much as you're here to learn from me, so I do appreciate your feedback. And I wanted to thank also the uh, some of the senior administrators here, and Curry, Kate Blanchard, and Maureen O'Neill, whose excellent work has really made this happen. Um, Now, in terms of inspiration for this, let me start with my twin brother's email responding to the flyer that went out. He says, teasingly, I just bought plane tickets. Hope I don't fall asleep during the lecture. It's my absolute favorite subject, unquote. So... I hope that at least for some of you, it may not be your favorite subject, but at least it'll be a subject of some interest, okay? So the ongoing trend towards disintermediation, by that I mean enabling companies to access the ultimate source of funds, the capital markets, without going through banks or other financial intermediaries. This trend is making banking failures less critical than in the past, Companies today are able to obtain most of their financing through the capital markets without the use of intermediaries. As a result, capital markets themselves are increasingly central to any examination of systemic risk. This has been dramatically illustrated by the recent global financial crisis. Many think the crisis started with the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers, But the initial trigger was the collapse of the market for mortgage-backed securities. A significant number of these securities were supported by subprime or risky home mortgage loans, which were expected to be refinanced through housing appreciation. But when home prices stopped rising, borrowers could not refinance, and in many cases, they defaulted. These defaults on the underlying mortgage loans caused substantial amounts of so-called investment-grade rated mortgage-backed securities to be downgraded. In some cases, some of these securities began defaulting. As a result, investors started losing confidence not only in these mortgage-backed securities of a rated investment grade, but also in other securities that were rated investment grade. As a result, the market price of investment-grade securities started to go down. Lehman Brothers held large amounts of mortgage-backed securities and therefore was particularly exposed. Firms that had been doing business with Lehman, its counterparties, began demanding additional safeguards. Lehman could not provide these safeguards, and as a result, Lehman could not continue doing business absent a bailout. The refusal of the US government to save Lehman added to this cascade. Securities markets panicked. Even the short-term commercial paper market, the safest debt market, virtually shut down. And the market price of mortgage-backed securities collapsed substantially below the intrinsic value of the mortgage assets underlying these securities. Now, this was illustrated to me in July of 2008. I happened to have been an expert for the High Court of Justice uh, in England, and it was the bankruptcy of the Structured Investment Vehicle, or CIV, Orion Finance. Um, We figured that the mortgage-backed securities owned by Orion Finance had a market value of approximately 22 cents on the dollar. In contrast, if you were to look at the underlying mortgage loans supporting these securities, most of them were not of subprime borrowers. Most of them were of prime borrowers and who should continue to pay their mortgages. And if you were to compute what the value of the securities should be based on that, you'd come out with between 80 and 90 cents on the dollar. So the markets were panicked. Now, this became a death spiral, as banks and other financial institutions holding mortgage-backed securities had to write down the value of these securities on the mark-to-market accounting. These institutions, therefore, appeared, and in some cases were, but often appeared, merely appeared, to be financially risky, and in turn, that triggered widespread concern over counterparty risk. Now, governments, including in the US and England, have done and are taking numerous steps to address the collapse. But most of these steps have focused on institutions and not markets. This narrow focus worked well when banks and other financial institutions were the primary source of corporate financing. But as the financial crisis reveals, the focus is now insufficient because companies obtain much of their financing directly through the capital markets. I believe that institutional systemic risk and market systemic risk should not be viewed each in isolation. Institutions and markets can both be triggers and transmitters of systemic risk. Now, how should we attempt to regulate systemic risk? Scholars argue that the primary justification for regulating financial risk is maximizing economic efficiency. Systemic risk being a form of financial risk, efficiency should certainly be a goal in its regulation. But efficiency has a a somewhat added dimension in the context of systemic risk. Without regulation, the externalities caused by systemic risk would not be prevented or internalized because systemic risk pertains to risks to the financial system itself. Market participants are motivated to protect themselves, but they're not necessarily motivated to protect the financial system as a whole. As a result, there is a type of tragedy of the commons. This is a collective action problem in which the benefits of exploiting finite capital resources accrue to individual market participants, each of whom is motivated to use, maximize use of resources. But the cost of exploiting these resources, which affect the real economy, the economy that you and I see, this cost is distributed among an even wider class of persons. In the U.S., we say that the consequences don't only affect Wall Street, they affect Main Street, the person, you know, ordinary person. Any regulation of systemic risk, therefore, should focus not only on traditional efficiency, but also on stability of the financial system. Now, one should also take into account the cost of regulation. There are direct costs, uh, for example, hiring government employees to monitor, to enforce the regulations. But there also can be indirect costs, such as over-regulation, that stifles innovation and competitiveness. And we need to be very careful about that. So with that in mind, let's consider some possible regulatory approaches. Now, the most ideal approach would be to stop systemic risk at its inception. And this goal, theoretically at least, could be achieved by preventing market panics or preventing financial panics, since panics are often the triggers that commence a chain of systemic failures. The recent financial crisis illustrated this. It was triggered by a financial market panic. But any regulation aimed at preventing panics that triggers systemic risk could fail, almost inevitably would fail, to anticipate all the causes of the panics. And even when identified, panics cannot always be prevented because investors are not always rational. Another possible approach to regulation would be trying to improve or increase disclosure. Now disclosure, disclosing risks, traditionally has been viewed under the securities laws in the US and abroad as the primary market regulatory mechanism. It works by reducing, if not eliminating, the asymmetric information among market players. It makes the risks transparent to all. In the context of systemic risk though, individual market participants who fully understand the risk, will still be motivated to protect themselves, but not to protect the system as a whole because of this type of tragedy, the commons. And furthermore, the efficacy of disclosure is limited by increasing complexity of transactions and markets. And I will talk about complexity tomorrow evening. I believe it's the greatest 21st century challenge for our financial system. In the recent financial crisis, for example, there's a little question that everything, virtually everything was disclosed regarding the complex mortgage-backed securities, but many institutional investors bought these securities primarily based on their ratings without fully understanding them. <coughs> and there are many... There are many reasons why this occurred. One reason is that analysts over relied on heuristics, such as rating agency ratings. Analysts and investors also followed the herd in their investment choices. Additionally, there were conflicts of interest, and this I think was especially bad in terms not of senior management, Scholars often talk about conflicts between senior managers of a firm and shareholders of a firm, or directors and shareholders. I think the problems here were conflicts, primarily conflicts among secondary managers, the analysts, and the other people who were understood what was going on with these complex securities. <clears throat> the problem, which I'll talk about uh, the next few days, was that these secondary analysts, these secondary managers, were paid based upon how many deals they booked, and they received bonuses each year without regard to the long-term performance of their investments, and that obviously is a conflict with the firm itself. Another problem is that the retention uh, by underwriters of the so called residual risk portions, the most subordinate portions of these very complex mortgage backed securities, may have actually fostered a false confidence, what I call a mutual misunderstanding. And what happened was, in some cases, the underwriters would sell <clears throat> the senior securities or many senior securities to third parties, but keep in many cases, the most subordinate tranches or classes of securities. This signaled to third parties these securities were good, but what it did is it misled the third parties. And this is troublesome because not only for the reason I just stated, but also because one of the solutions that's presently enacted in the U.S. and being considered elsewhere is to ensure that sellers and underwriters of complex securities retain a slice of risk in each of the securities sold to signal, essentially, their confidence of those securities. And I think if the sellers don't understand it, they can actually mislead the buyers. As a result of all this, I don't see a way to improve disclosure. And I think that Improving disclosure in any event could do little to reduce systemic risk. I think we do need to address these conflicts of interest in terms of the management compensation structure, especially of short-term managers. Now, another potential regulatory approach would be imposing financial exposure limits. The failure of one or more large and interconnected financial institutions could create defaults large enough to destabilize other highly leveraged investors. This would increase the likelihood of a systemic market meltdown. This suggests an other possible approach to the regulation, placing limits on an institution's financial exposure. Now, these limits could be imposed in various ways. I'll give just two examples. One would be limiting an institution's leverage. Another would be, limiting an institution's right to make risky investments, such as the so-called Volcker Rule's proposal to limit proprietary trading. Now, limiting an institution's leverage could reduce the risk that an institution fails in the first place. It also could reduce the likelihood of transmitting financial contagion between institutions. The problem is that limiting leverage can create significant costs. Some leverage is good. There's no optimal across-the-board amount of leverage that's right for every institution. Limiting an institution's right to make investments is also problematic. It's a highly paternalistic approach, substituting a blanket regulatory prescription for a firm's own business judgment. And I would be skeptical of any rule that attempts to protect a sophisticated financial institution from itself. As I mentioned, though, and I'll talk later, there is a tragedy of the commons issue I think we do need to address. Now, another potential approach to regulation would be limiting financial institution size, And this is related to financial exposure limits, but here there's also the moral hazard potential of institutions who believe they are, quote, too big to fail, and I'm sure you've heard this. The concept of moral hazard here is that these institutions will engage in unnecessarily risky projects because if they fail, they will be bailed out by the government. There's no clear evidence of this sort of moral hazard. Furthermore, I believe that financial institutional losses, at least in the recent financial crisis, can all be explained by other reasons. I would caution against artificially limiting institutional size. Size should be governed by economies of scale and scope needed for firms to successfully compete both domestically and internationally. The key, though, is that that size be manageable. What I think we need to watch out for is firms that increase their size, not to increase the efficiency of, you know, scales of size and scope, but because these senior executives essentially uh, have an ego that they want to be head of a larger institution. And this is another reason why management compensation ideally should be tied to long-term results. Now, yet another regulatory approach, and maybe the last one I want to talk about, is ensuring liquidity, and this is in two parts. Liquidity can help stability in two ways. One, by providing liquidity to prevent financial institutions from defaulting. Second, by providing liquidity to financial or capital markets as necessary to keep them functioning. Let's take the first, um, the uh, liquidity to institutions. In the U.S., the Federal Reserve Bank has a role of providing liquidity to prevent financial institutions from defaulting by effectively acting or having the ability to act as a lender of last resort. But this can be costly. By providing a lifeline, a lender of last resort can at least theoretically foster moral hazard, by encouraging financial institutions that believe they're too big to fail to be fiscally reckless. Again, I said I don't see evidence of this, but at least theoretically it could happen. Furthermore, this can shift costs to taxpayers to the extent that loans made to institutions are not repaid if those institutions eventually fail. And for these reasons, the recent Dodd-Frank Act Essentially, the U.S. financial legislation uh, responding to the crisis limits the power of the Federal Reserve Bank to make emergency loans to institutions. I personally regard that categorical limitation as rather perverse. A lender or last resort can be an important safeguard if it's used judiciously. <clears throat> now, regardless of how one views a lender of resort to financial institutions. The financial crisis has shown that in an era of disintermediation, remember this is removing intermediaries such as banks between the ability of a company to borrow and the capital markets. In this era, more attention needs to be focused on providing liquidity to financial markets as necessary to keep them functioning. And this approach should be less costly than lending to institutions. For example, a market liquidity provider or last resort, especially if it acts at the outset of a financial panic, can profitably invest in securities at a deep discount for market price and still provide a floor, a minimum level, to how low the market will drop. Buying at a deep discount mitigates moral hazard and it also makes it likely that the liquidity provider will be repaid. So of these various regulatory approaches, I would so far recommend at least two to ensure that managers, including secondary managers of financial institutions are compensated based on long-term firm performance and to establish a market liquidity provider last resort. And in the latter context, Experience in the financial crisis actually provides empirical support of a market liquidity provider or last resort. I mentioned that after Lehman's, Lehman Brothers collapsed, the commercial paper market in the U.S. basically stopped functioning. The Federal Reserve acted effectively then as a market liquidity provider or last resort through its so-called commercial paper funding facility And what it did is it purchased commercial paper from highly rated issuers that could not otherwise sell the paper, these short-term debt securities. This facility helped to stabilize the commercial paper market. Now, I would also recommend a third regulatory approach. I mentioned the tragedy of the commons, and to address that problem, I think that we need to require financial institutions of systemic significance, however one defines that, to contribute to a fund that could be used to mitigate systemic externalities. And this approach was originally in the Dodd-Frank Act in the U.S. Unfortunately, it was taken out the last minute because of oppositions by politicians who believed, and I think wrongly, that it would increase moral hazard by institutionalizing bailouts. And this is a little bit ironic because I think if it does anything, it reduces, financial, uh, uh, reduces the moral hazard. Um, and let me explain why. A privately financed systemic risk fund, basically financed or funded by the systemically important institutions, not only can mitigate systemic externalities, but also can reduce the risky behavior of institutions that are too big to fail. Too big to fail is effectively an externality imposed on government and ultimately taxpayers by institutions engaging in risky behavior. But privately financed a privately financed fund would help to internalize that externality, but more significantly... The ability of government to require additional contributions to this type of fund should motivate contributors to the fund to monitor each other to reduce the potential for risky behavior because they wouldn't want to contribute anymore. Recently, the European Commission has been toying with the idea of a systemic risk fund in connection with its proposal to tax the financial sector. And although the ultimate use of tax revenues is currently unresolved, news reports indicate that an originally contemplated use was a systemic risk fund. The IMF, International Monetary Fund, also now appears to be using the European Commission tax proposal as a platform to announce that new taxes on banks are needed to provide an insurance fund for future financial meltdowns and to curb excessive risk-taking. Now, implicitly in everything I've said so far, there's been the, the concept that all of this is quite international. And obviously, financial markets and financial institutions increasingly cross sovereign borders. Regulatory approaches, therefore, must be designed work in an international context. And we should consider, we should examine closely, the feasibility of internationally regulating systemic risk, perhaps even including a market liquidity provider that's international. Any regulation that is limited to a nation or a region such as the EU, not only could be ineffective, but perversely, it can make that nation or region uncompetitive, at least in the short term. And so we really do need to take an international look. Now, I want to finally switch focus slightly. Any discussion of global financial crisis and systemic risk should also address the problem of sovereign debt restructuring, country debt restructuring. As we've seen, even relatively small nations like Greece can be viewed as too big to fail if their default could trigger wider economic collapse. As a result, they are often bailed out. Now bailouts can foster true moral hazard. This is because nations, unlike financial institutions, cannot be liquidated, and governments have strong political incentives to avoid reducing services or raising taxes. The Greek government, for example, did very little to impose fiscal constraints, even as debts accumulated. Furthermore, bailouts are very expensive. In the case of Greece, the bailout cost will likely to cost hundreds of billions of euros. This is a growing problem. Global markets increasingly embrace sovereign bonds, and this makes the potential for a country's debt default to trigger a larger systemic collapse. So how do we address this? The alternative to a bailout is an orderly debt restructuring. But orderly debt restructuring is usually impractical, and the reason is there are two market failures. There's a holdout problem, and there's also a funding problem. The holdout problem is that any given creditor has an incentive to strategically refuse to consent to a debt restructuring plan. That creditor may hope that the desire of others to settle will persuade the others to pay the holdout more than its fair share of the settlement or even to purchase the holdout's claim. And uh, this is actually very playfully illustrated by a delightful movie, Waking Ned Devine, a British movie, and some of you may have seen it. Ned Devine is an elderly man in a remote Irish village. He wins the national lottery and immediately dies of shock. Now, the townspeople want to have one of their own impersonate Ned Devine, and in that way that divine or the person impersonating a divine will receive these millions and millions of pounds uh, of the lottery money, and then the agreement would be to split the monies evenly among the town's residents. But one resident threatens to reveal the ruse to the authorities unless she receives a disproportionately high share of the monies. This is a perfect example of the holdout problem I assign it to my corporate reorganization and bankruptcy class each year as an assignment. Um, that's a good movie, too. You should watch it. Okay. Now, so that's the holdout problem. You also have the funding problem. And this problem is that a country is likely to need to borrow new money to pay critical expenses during the debt restructuring process. Well no lender is likely to be willing to lend such funds unless the lender's right to repayment has priority over existing debt claims. So any effective solution to the sovereign debt dilemma would have to address these two problems, the holdout problem and the funding problem. Let's look first at how one might address the holdout problem. This problem can be addressed by legislation through an international treaty. And the way to accomplish it, at least one way, would be to adopt a form of what's referred to as supermajority voting on sovereign debt restructuring plans. The idea is that the vote by the overwhelming majority of similarly situated creditors can bind dissenting creditors. Now this is a tried and true method by which insolvency law including Chapter 11 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code, successfully and equitably addresses this holdout problem. Because only similarly situated creditors can vote to bind dissenting creditors, and because any outcome of the voting will bind all creditors alike, the outcomes of votes should benefit the claims of the holdouts and the dissenters as much as the claims of the supermajority. So everyone you know, who votes in a class essentially is in the same boat, so to speak. Now, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, actually proposed this type of international convention some years back. They called it a Sovereign Debt Restructuring Convention, and it was based on scholarly research of the problem, including some of my own research. The convention was never adopted, though, because of political opposition in the United States by the second Bush administration, George W., Okay, based on the philosophical dogma that free market solutions always ought to trump legislative ones. And there was sort of a lack of vision that sometimes there can be market failures. The government uh, instead favored solving the holdout problem contractually through what are referred to as collective action clauses, allowing essential payment terms of a loan facility to be changed through supermajority as opposed to unanimous voting. Now, there are two fundamental problems with collective action clauses. First, these types of clauses are not always included in sovereign loan and bond agreements. In the Greek debt crisis, recent Greek debt crisis, for example, uh, colleagues of mine have estimated that 90% of the total Greek debt was not governed by collective action clauses. The second problem is even if, and this would never happen, that even if every sovereign loan and bond agreement included collective action clauses, these clauses only work on an agreement by agreement basis. Therefore, any one syndicate of banks or any one group of bondholders that fails to achieve a supermajority vote themselves, okay, that syndicate of banks or group of bondholders would itself be a holdout vis-a-vis other creditors of the country. And therefore, I believe that an international convention in which supermajority voting combined all of a nation's creditors will be needed to solve the holdout problem. Now let's look to the funding problem. An international convention could also address this problem and a simple remedy would be to grant a first priority right of repayment to loans of new money made to enable a country to pay critical expenses during the debt restructuring process. Existing creditors can be protected by giving them the right to object to a new money loan if they feel the amount is too high or because its terms are inappropriate. Existing creditors also will be further protected because a country that abuses new money lending privileges will be unlikely to receive supermajority creditor approval for a debt restructuring plan. Or to put it more simply, if you have a country that tries to essentially screw its creditors in terms of the new money arrangement, those creditors will simply say vote no for any plan under the convention. Now, some of you may ask, okay, why do we need to give a priority right under a convention? Why can't the country itself simply determine as a matter of its national law that a priority would be given to a new money lender during a debt restructuring process. And there are many answers to that. One answer is that a country that basically says, yes, new money lender, you will have priority. That country can later say, no, we've changed our mind because it is a matter of national law, if you leave it to that. Another reason is that there are government creditors of countries and those government creditors may exert some political influence to have their claims come first. If you have an international convention that is agreed to by nations and that clearly specifies the priority, you create a legitimacy that will be followed. Now, once these market failures, the that problem, the funding problem can, you know, are addressed, the remainder of the sovereign debt restructuring process can, I believe, be consensual. And a consensual process will not undermine the rule of law as would an attempt by a nation to unilaterally impose a haircut on its bonds by, for example, reducing the amount of the principal or reducing the rate of interest. Nor should a consensual restructuring increase the borrowing costs for other nations, a nation whose debt has been consensually restructured, restructured by agreement of all the parties, should itself be able to borrow new money at attractive rates. Now, finally, some might argue that you would need an international bankruptcy court or something of this type to essentially monitor and arrange, coordinate the debt restructuring. I don't believe that would be the case the experience of corporate debt restructuring in the U.S. under the Chapter 11 confirms that the parties themselves do most of the negotiating. It's only when parties can't reach agreement on issues that you have the court come into play. And in this regard, we already have a relatively low-cost and straightforward procedure under international law for resolving financial disputes This is ICSID, or the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes. It's an autonomous body created under the auspices of the World Bank, and it provides facilities for arbitration of investment disputes. Its procedure is established, commonly used, and widely accepted, and it could well be a model for this type of dispute resolution mechanism. So that is what I formally want to say.